Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. This is our fourth podcast of fall semester 2020. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I am joined here today by IC Assistant Director Marie-Laure Loskerson and special guest Bob Hudson, Associate Professor of French at Brigham Young University, Editor-in-Chief of Lingua Romana, a journal of French, Italian, and Romanian culture, and longtime friend of international cinema. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. This week, we are discussing films related to World War II in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the end of that global event. As you might imagine, the international cinema team had to make a number of adjustments to our schedule as COVID-19 compelled us to move to a streaming-only program. Distribution challenges forced us, for example, to drop Dunkirk and Letters from Iwo Jima. We are thrilled, however, to be streaming The Accountant of Auschwitz, a 2018 documentary, and Hiroshima Mon Amor, a 1959 experimental fiction film. And we will have some conversations about both of those films. We'll begin, however, with Hiroshima Mon Amor. And Bob, we'll start with you. I've gotten the sense that Hiroshima Mon Amor is one of those films that many have in their must-see list, but that for one reason or another, they're a bit slow to get around to seeing. The film is uh, certainly a cinematic experience, and I'm hoping that this podcast will engage those who have already seen it and perhaps encourage those who have not yet done so uh, to do so sooner rather than later. Uh, In an email that you wrote to me, you described the film as your desert island film. And so to start off, I was hoping that you might explain what you meant by that comment and why this film is so important to you personally. Sure. Um, I'll definitely talk about that. I, I want to go back to what you were saying about this is a film that's on most people's must-see list. In fact, when I presented to International Cinema on Amélie uh, a few years back, I gave a list of, if you're only going to watch three French films, which one should they be? And I said Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion, this film, Alain René's Hiroshima Mon Amour, and then I would put Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Amélie at the end of that list. So yeah, it's on the very, very short list of French films that I think everyone should see. Doug, you called it an experimental experience of a, a fictional film, and it very much is that, but it didn't start that way. And I'd like to talk about that, maybe swing back to that later. But it is my desert island film because it is so profoundly human and it's so deeply layered. There's always something new to discover and it makes you come to terms with your own humanity and and kind of grasp at how your own involuntary memory works. So that's why it's my desert island film. I would say I've watched it conservatively probably 50 times and I always feel like there's something fresh and new. So if we are trying to get those who have watched it before to come to it beneath another lens... I would welcome that opportunity and I recommend highly that they do that. It is probably the most literary and operatic film at the same time I've ever seen. I I love that idea that you've uh, seen something as many as 50 times. I have that same experience with my favorite Mexican novel, Pedro Paramo. And when I teach it again, I always tell my students that I reread the novel, oftentimes reading it out loud, and that I've probably read it at least 50 times. And they're always a bit amazed. So I'm glad to hear that you have that experience with, with this film. Perhaps you can jump into some of those technical and experimental issues of the film and why this film is so important in the development of French and international film. Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. 
I think it's really interesting when you think of Heine being part of the French New Wave. He really came to be known to French audiences and even international audiences with Night and Fog, which is a 30-minute documentary that I'm assuming a lot of people might have seen in high school or in college courses talking about the Shoah. Night and Fog was made of a juxtaposition of um, existing archival footage that was found in the cleanup of Nazi death camps. They took this archival footage and kind of went back 10 years later in 1955 and kind of filmed what these places look like now. It's really eerie. It's hard to watch. It's one of those films where you do have, again, archival footage being filmed of people that are going to uh, the gas chambers of piles of human hair, uh, piles of teeth that were pulled from living human beings heads and, and, and just in stacked eyeglasses that are there um, just in piles and piles. It's, just, uh, it's, it's unbelievable seeing how gruesome this film is. So um, Heine, if I mention that, it's because Heine went into Hiroshima Monamur with sort of the plan to make another documentary. He was going to make a nonfiction film about the experience of, of Hiroshima, you know, 15 years after the event. However, there's no archival footage left in Hiroshima. The bombing of 6th August uh, 1945 kind of made it to where, you know, nothing remained. There's a line that uh, Marguerite Duhas writes into her screenplay that, you know, we have reconstructions and reconstitution. She says, faute d'autre chose. She repeats this multiple times, for lack of anything else. There was nothing really to build on. So you actually get that in the first maybe 20 minutes of the film after sort of the love scene at the beginning that's really key to the film. But right after that, it goes to Elle, um, the, the main female character, her experience of being in Hiroshima, shooting this film on peace there in the city. But she goes to the, the museum multiple times and she has to see these reconstructions. She has to see these films that were made soberly and seriously, but can only be that. And that's kind of a representation of Rene's personal experience because he reaches this impasse and realizes, Memory doesn't work that way. Memory is involuntary. You're not going to get to memory through these models and through these films. Memory comes up when we least expect it to. So he kind of scrapped the idea of a documentary and went back to his producers and said, I need to make this a fictional film and I have to have someone you know, that's capable of doing this on board. And that's how Marguerite Duhas became part of it. She's this major novelist in the new novel tradition that was big in the 50s. And, you know, this narrative structure and focalization come in and really ramp the film up in interesting ways. And what are some of the legacies of this film? In other words, how did it impact filmmaking in France and around the world? It's, it's very modern film. The, the, the way it deals with memory, the fact that it does have these nonlinear uh, narrative moments. I mean, other people in experimental cinema, even from the silent period, were dealing with the inner workings of man's mind, of mankind's mind, but this idea of the nonlinear narrative of memory. You know, in the museum, you're wanting to establish something that's linear, something that goes from point A to point B to point C. But uh, you see in the dreams that Elle has of her life as a, a young girl back in Nevers, 
and the fact that Lui, the male character, the Japanese character, that his hands would twitch when he sleeps and he's remembering um, his family's fate at Hiroshima while he was away on military campaign also, you see that it's not linear, that these things come back in ebbs and flows, and we just kind of have to deal with them and suppress them or work through them. So it's uh, a storytelling. I think you would see someone like Scorsese or maybe more... Uh, directly someone like Tarantino or Christopher Nolan, the way they deal with the, the inner workings of the mind, the way they deal with storytelling in a nonlinear way kind of shows this same type of legacy that René does so well in this film. And also it's it's dealing with the impossibility of the retelling of a, mm-hmm. a traumatic memory, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, something that is impossible to tell. So not only are we dealing with the difficulty of memory, but as well this meditation on what happened in Hiroshima and the impossibility of telling the story. So we're going back between the past and between the present. And it's true that as as viewers at the beginning, you're talking about that twitching hand of the Japanese lover and the twitching hand of this first love, the strong, strongest love in their life, maybe with the German soldier, this forbidden love as well, and how everything is linked in her gaze and the impossibility of making sense of that trauma on the personal level, but as well on the collective level. She has this historical memory that's very much linked to what she saw on the news, images of Hiroshima after the bombing. And she's saying, I've seen everything in Hiroshima. And yet the Japanese lover is reminding her that you have seen nothing. So working with that juxtaposition of archival footage that you mentioned in Night and Fog is is working here as well to tell the unexpressible. Yeah, I like what you said there about the collective memory, because I think that's something that Juhas is very attuned to in this. I love the fact that she chose not to name the character in the screenplay. They are lui and elle. They are him and her. This might be a spoiler for the end of the film, but I don't think it is because this is the kind of film that doesn't have spoilers. Like I said, I've watched it 50 times. But one thing that she writes into that, the very last line, you you see that each of the two characters is a synecdoche of a side of trauma. You know, you know, he tells her, you are Nevers, Nevers in France. And she says to him, you are Hiroshima. And so they are these sort of synecdochal representations of communal trauma and these sites of trauma. And they become sort of this Balmogiliad for each other of working through trauma, uh, which I think is really beautiful as well. I love those comments and especially how they get to the very personal nature of these two characters. One of the things that really excites me about this film, and I've only seen it twice, <laughs> so you know, but is the landscape and the focus on on Hiroshima as a city that has been destroyed, but that is also coming back, right? And so, Marie Lord, you talked about the past and the present, but in some ways, I, I find a certain amount of hope just by seeing the cityscapes and all of the images that show the Japanese citizens who currently inhabit this place that has been so scarred by war. Bob, how do you see the presence of the city and the landscape? I love the way Hiroshima is depicted in this film. In fact, it's it's on my list of places that I have to go to and see mm-hmm. because of this film, as is Nevers. And one thing you'll find out about Nevers, if you ever try to go there in France, it's it's three hours from everywhere. 
It doesn't matter where you are in France. It takes three hours to get into there. I, I'm joking. But um, anyway, back to Hiroshima. I had a really interesting experience before my colleague Van Gessel retired last year. He is a Japanese professor who has been to study abroads in Japan quite a bit. And I have a copy of Emmanuel Riva, the actress in Hiroshima Mon Amour, that plays Ed. She went when, when they were location scouting, and she has this book called Tu n'as rien vu à Hiroshima. It's a photo essay. Uh, you saw nothing in Hiroshima. And she actually takes all these pictures of the city. So you kind of get those. And, and René used those as sort of site location scouting for himself. But uh, one thing in her photography and the film as well, and especially in the film, there's almost this centrifugal focus on the Genbaku Dome or the atomic bomb dome. And that's something Van Gessel helped me uh, figure out. You know, the tea room where a lot of the psychological work happens when he walks her through her memories. And there's a point when he even says, I am your German lover. You did this to me. Do you remember when I did this? Do you remember when we were together? And it's helping her really uh, psychoanalytically work through the memory she has. The name of that tea room, I did a screen grab and I emailed it to Van and Van told me it's called The Dome. The name of the restaurant in Japanese is The Dome. And the location that it is, is the site of the bridge that was bombed by Enola Gay. So you have this centrifugal focus on that UNESCO site of the atomic bomb dome that is now part of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial. So there is this sense of the city has moved on. But the shadows, the memory still pervades, usually in the background or as a backdrop. But I do love the humanistic message that the city has been able to thrive and move on, even if a lot of people do have sterility, who have scarring, both physical and emotional, that will be with them for the rest of their lives. Great. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. And we've talked already a little bit about uh, how you teach this film. And I was wondering if you might comment just a bit on how your students receive it. How do you teach it to them and how do they uh, come to grips with uh, such a powerful film in, in terms of personal, but also historical and filmic uh, characteristics? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about that. One uh, thing that I like to point out is the importance of music. For them to pay attention to the music, if you see this as an operatic film, that really helps. Um, Godard famously said that this film is Faulkner meets Stravinsky. So you get the modernist storytelling, the modernist narrative that's developing, but you also get this very modernistic music as well. And Georges de la Rue, who wrote the score, the composer who wrote the score, has this operatic score that works in movements that really drives the narrative, that keeps the suspense and allows you to sort of see these breakthroughs, you know, that dum 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 It sounds very, very um, Japanese and French at the same time. And I love how the film kind of screeches to a halt and it's almost like a train pulling into the station and screeches to a halt. There's no real conclusion or, or, or closure to the film. When I do teach this film, to return to that question, I am often shocked by the vocal minority who feel scandalized by the adulterous relationship portrayed by two married people. That's something we run into almost every year, the fact that this is an adulterous relationship. You learn that both of them are married and supposedly happily married in other relationships. The fact also that you have this uh, scene at the very beginning that is two naked bodies intertwined, although you don't see any of the, the, the parts that would get it an R rating in today's MPAA system, it is two nude bodies intertwined, but so intertwined that 
you can't really tell who is he and who is she at certain times. And they go from being just two bodies to glistening with, with sweat and then with covered with ash. And I think that's just a very beautiful way to start this film. People are scandalized by that also. The responses that I usually have to that when people do are met with that scandal is, um, while I don't advocate for such, I would argue that thanks to one another, these two people's lives and their marriages are both more fulfilling because they worked through this moment together. You know, she's made it clear that she hasn't really been able to love her husband because she's kind of stuck in the moment of this German lover that she had back in the war. I would like to think if there was a, a sort of next step to this, that she goes back to France and she remembers her Japanese lover. She remembers her German lover, but she's able to live a more fulfilling life with her, her husband and children thanks to this. And also, I think the fact that people are scandalized by a, an adulterous relationship, which, you know, is what it is. The scandal should be as Elle, the character Elle, makes clear that we ever dared, that we ever succeeded to drop a bomb Absolutely. on so many innocent people. That's that's absolutely. the absolutely that powerful way that you mentioned to start the film with the loving embrace and then the dying embrace of those bodies that are tortured under the the effect of the bomb is very powerful. And again, like you, I'm not advocating this love between two married people, but the contrast between this loving relationship. Yes, it is a love that does not care about laws, like the love she had for the German soldier. It's a love that crosses frontiers and boundaries it's condemnable but it's it's love and the contrast with what happens to a society that is bombed and the physical emotional psychological suffering that continues after this event this intimacy between two lovers and then the public suffering because of what society is doing that is a contrast that is very powerful in reminding us what is con or asking us what is condemnable, what is objectionable. Is this this love or is this the war that is uh, scarring so many? Perhaps uh, to finish up with the Roshima Mon Amor, Bob, you've seen the film 50 times, but yeah. for the viewer who is watching it for the first time, maybe quickly, if you could just suggest one thing in particular that you would recommend to a first-time viewer that they should look for and take away from this film? That's a good question. Mario just talked about the mortified flesh, the people in suffering, but I think one motif that jumps out throughout this film is the motif of hands. We talked about the twitching hand of both the Japanese lover um, who's sleeping in bed and probably having a nightmare that mirrors and, and sort of calls to memory the twitching hand of the dying German lover, but hands, hands are a motif found throughout the city of Hiroshima. The way that the Delta sits on the Ota river actually has been told, been said to look like the, the, the lines on a human hand in the palm of a hand, but to see how hands and see how sort of these sort of insignificant things, a twitching hand, but how in our own lives, these little insignificant uh, triggers will call memories and voluntary memories, um, memories of shame, memories of pain, memories of hurt, and how this film helps you sort of have a model for working through your own traumas in life. That's why it's such a humanity reassuring film is that it uh, is applicable to all of us. We all live with our own shames, with our own failures, with our own difficulties, with things we would like to forget and can't. And this film kind of says, and facing those head on, we can do that. If I watch the film over and over, 
over again. It's a reminder of what humanity is ultimately capable of and how we as individuals can work through our own collective trauma. You've given us a great segue into our next film, Bob, actually, which is Accountant from Auschwitz, which uh, in many ways has a lot of those same very human connections to Hiroshima Mon Amor and dealing with pain and loss and guilt and suffering. But it also has a, a very distinct take, whereas Hiroshima Mon Amor in many ways seems to me to be a film that looks for forgiveness. Accountant uh, from Auschwitz is dealing with a very different topic and perhaps a different tone. It's a 2018 Canadian documentary in English with some German. It was directed by Matthew Scheuchet. I hope I pronounce his name correctly. And it follows the 2015 trial of Oskar Grunig, a minor staff member at the Auschwitz concentration camp, who at 21 was responsible for collecting the valuables of Jews arriving at the camp. And after the war, Grunig transitioned into a quiet life into his, in his hometown. And so the documentary is very powerful in kind of dealing with memory and forgetfulness and how do we deal with, do we forgive, do we uh, prosecute individuals who have escaped accountability for so many years. Marilor, I know that you uh, were particularly taken by this documentary and that particular topic. So I'm wondering what you can tell us about your experience of viewing this piece. Happy to. Yes, the accountant of Auschwitz, it's not so much about accounting and being an accountant, but accounts and holding accounts right between what happened in the past and and someone who is seen as as guilty in the in the present this 90 plus year old accused of of war crime the documentary does a really good job at showing that he was not the main guy he was not the one pushing buttons but because he was part of a bigger machine he's as responsible as the other ones this is really posing very important questions about how to use the legal system that was the first time in history that lawmakers had to figure out a way after the war how to use the legal system to bring some kind of closure. So it was more about the accountability of Germany as well and people who were seen as responsible. I think at the time of the Nuremberg trials, our accountant would would have been just not important enough to to be tried. And now the legal system and people have caught up with him and they want justice. So so it's really asking important questions after so many years. And this man, it seems, has lived a good life. He was a very young man when he was a Nazi. He doesn't seem to be a very active in any kind of Nazi sentiment at this point. So how do we judge him and how do we see his accountability in, in the whole plan? That, that is a very important question. At, at one point in the documentary, one of the victims of the Auschwitz camp uh, during uh, Grunig's trial actually forgives him in a very public way and actually embraces this individual that uh, years earlier had been part of the machinery that... Uh, oppressed her and, and so many others. I, I wonder if you have any comments about what the film is trying to tell us about whether 
you know, prosecution is uh, the goal or should be the goal or whether perhaps uh, forgiveness should be the goal. How do you see that? That's an answer that is is very personal. And I would like everyone who watches this to just answer that question for themselves. Because in the case of the Jewish, actually, I do not remember if she was a practicing Jewish person or not, but she was in the camps. And when she comes to him and says, I forgive you, the other survivors are absolutely shocked and say, you cannot do this. This is not your right to do it. As, as a Christian, I do have another vision of things, but it's, it's, I think it's a fundamental maybe difference as a Christian about forgiveness and about a forgiveness that can be extended to all people. But having said that, I am not someone who has experienced it. So I have to be very careful in what I express because the sensibility of the the topic is very clear in this documentary. It, it does ask real questions and it's a great documentary and it's about history, about memory, about accountability and about justice. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I, I kind of have the same sense that the that the film really brings up a lot of questions. And although I think a majority of the people that are interviewed, uh, most of them, uh, you know, survivors, that they tend to want to continue to go after some of these these individuals who committed atrocities so many years before, that like you say, that there really is this sense that forgiveness at least is an option. And the film kind of leaves us to uh, perhaps come to our own conclusions in very difficult terms, right? This is a very difficult situation. What would you uh, say is the thing that uh, viewers should take out of this film as they, they look at it this week? Well, is there crimes that can be tried? Is there crimes that cannot be tried in international court? How do we do we deal with international justice? And, and how do we deal with time? How does time influence justice? Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who will be joining us on our podcast. To get access to the accountant of Auschwitz and Hiroshima Monamor, visit ic.byu.edu and follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your net ID. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hickstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week. Keep streaming.